Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. Today we'll be talking about friendship. So Lisa, let's start out by talking about how we make friendships, how we keep friendships. How do we participate in friendships in our day-to-day lives and in our broader lives? For me, I'm one of those people who makes friends very easily, I assume, because I do intimacy well, you know? So it's not difficult for me to be friends with the barista at the coffee shop and the server you know, and my favorite lunch place and my bartender and the poll worker and the mayor and, you know, the members of the city council and the people that I work with and, you know, my kid's teacher at school. Like it, it is very easy for me to make friends across social barriers that I think prevent other people from making friendships. Partly that's because I'm an extrovert. (laughs) You know, it's not difficult for me to break out of myself, to be able to connect with other people. But I do think that um, one of the reasons that I wanted to do the friendship episode is because so many people ask me about friendship and worry that they don't have enough friends or they, they stop making friends or they don't know how to make friends, and it gets particularly worse as they age. And so I think that we're surrounded by a lot of folks that are really um, quite desperate in a lot of ways to connect with other people and make friends that they can share life connections with. So, and some of that's because they're introverted and some of that's because they don't know where to find people who are interested in the things that they're interested in. Part of that is time because they work so much. And part of that is compulsory heterosexuality because they're stuck in coupledom and they think that if they just spend their time with their partner, then, you know, they don't actually have to reach out and find meaningful, sustaining friendships. And part of that are class barriers that happen you know, because of where people live or where they work, and part of that's race and segregation. I think that there are a lot of barriers to overcome to make the kinds of friendships that are sustainable, Mm -hmm. but I think that it's becoming increasingly difficult to do that. So what about you, Laura? Like, when we think about kinds of friendships and how to make and sustain meaningful relationships, what do you think are the skills or tools or perspectives that are useful in building the kinds of strong relationships that really contribute to the contentedness that people might feel about their lives. Well, one thing I noticed when you were talking is that a lot of the friendships you were discussing and like the way that you kind of are introduced to people and become familiar with them is like organic, unplanned, spontaneous, spontaneous interactions in public. And I think the reasons that you were saying people have this deficit of friendships and like relationships in their lives because the opportunities for those spontaneous interactions has is quite small now. I think back on the ways that I've made friends in the past and so much of it depended on having a lot of free time. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and, and that's why people make friends, you know, more frequently in young adulthood and you know, when there's like a surplus of time and you can just burn the midnight oil with someone. That's something that doesn't happen, you know, as obligations begin to outweigh the free time you have to choose to make friendships. The friendships I've made have been a lot about having free time and choosing to spend it in particular ways and having 
just incidental connections with people, like things that were unplanned and connections that were unexpected. A lot of my friendships have generated in that way. But as I've become older, it's been like a lot of deciding, you know, Mm -hmm. like it is very intentional who I spend my time with now. And, and you were talking about like servers, bartenders, baristas, even like up to the mayor, all those people are serving you in a particular way. They are serving you Mm -hmm. and they are meant to be in a public space with you. And you are interacting with them because they are there (laughs) deliberately, like for themselves to make money. Sure. But also part of their being in the world in that role is to interact with people in a productive way. And so like, that's part of why I like being a server and bartender is because those incidental interactions are legion. They are, they're legion. So that is (laughs) as much as I disparage being a server and as much as I feel complain about being underemployed, the amount of interpersonal interaction I have both with my coworkers, with strangers, like a lot of the pleasurable, spontaneous, unexpected, Mm -hmm. joyful interactions I have are just because I work in like one of the top places that people meet in Fayetteville. A couple of them, in fact. So, I mean, that is a delight. But also, like, you have to bear in mind that those reactions are partially commercial. And... Oh, yeah. No, you got to get people out of those settings, though. I think that the thing that that um, folks don't do is that they don't see people in their everyday lives, even there when they're being served as potential friends. I think that there's some other people in the community that somehow exist outside of neoliberal capital and those are the friends where I'm like no like your bank teller can be your friend and your colleagues I guess though my colleagues are my least dense network of friends because I'm with them all the time and I'm working with them so I would much rather have new kinds of relationships with people who don't do what I do so that's an important thing to me but I guess for me you know I'm I'm I think I talked about it in, in one of the episodes for season one that I'm interested in risk. So I don't mind having intergenerational friendships, you know, or breaking out of social structures that are often that often seem like they're prohibitive of friendship. For me, I'm interested in meeting people and spending time with people who are fun to talk to, who I feel like can connect with me, who can show up and support me and accept my support and affection in return. I'm interested in friendships that are complex and interesting and meaningful, where there is fairly symmetrical self-disclosure, where there's a sense of reciprocity, of closeness or contact or empathy or nurturing, and where people are interested in building with me. So I'm, I'm also very good at leaving friendships and being like, this is not working for me. We don't have the same goals and I'm happy to move on and find something else that seems like it's more suitable to the kinds of, of needs that I have, which are very clearly communicated. So I guess that leads us to sort of back to intimacy is like, what do you think is the role of intimacy in creating and sustaining the kinds of friendships, even though, even the ones that are fleeting? I know you're very prone to fleeting friendships, which I love too, especially as a world traveler, like what are the kinds of tools of intimacy that you think build the best friendships, even if they're momentary? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think it's important to understand that a lot of friendship is like 
circumstantial. Like you can become friends with someone because you of know. proximity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly that plays a role, but also perhaps you feel alienated in a particular situation mm-hmm. and you like see someone else with like a similar temperament and you're like, let's do this together. In my experience with friendships and you know I do it quite differently than a lot of women I don't have a squad squad (laughs) I haven't done that in a long time yeah I I, a lot of my friendships have been like very close intimate they've been very intense volatile female friendships and they've been very we've been the most important person to one another and then (laughs) you know most of my experience, of course, is in young adulthood, and that's, like, par for the course, oh, I yeah. think. So mm-hmm. we're, like, going through a tumultuous time together anyway. I think friendships, I think they can be expectation-free because both parties choose to enter into them. Yeah. And I've talked to you about how some of my favorite friendships are very short, very fleeting friendships. I went on a pilgrimage a couple summers ago across Spain, and I met people for, like, a day, and maybe we decided to walk together for the next couple of days, and we talked and talked. I mean, part of the benefit of traveling in that way is that you have just Mm -hmm. your entire day. Like, the only thing you have to do is walk, and (laughs) that's, like, so much free time to use your brain to think if you're walking alone or to talk to someone else if you're walking together and I've talked to you about how I've made incredible connections with people just because we had so much free time to talk and that we both chose to walk together we chose to walk at the same pace Mm -hmm. even if you walk half a second faster than someone you cannot walk together so part of it is we've made a deliberate choice to walk Mm -hmm. together and talk together and that's really important and you know like there were times when I had had plans to continue walking. We had different plans about where we would spend the night or where we would end up. Maybe I wanted to walk five miles further before I stopped, but maybe I made a connection with someone. And I was like, let's keep doing Like, let's stop. Let's have a drink. Let's stay here. Cause like we can continue being friends. And that's something I think that, you know, traveling allows you to do, but that isn't possible in your day to day life. Totally. There's not a situation in my life right now where I'm able to, you know, unless we meet for breakfast and then hang out the entire day, there's not a situation where I can be hitting it off with a new person and be like, let's stay up all night. Let's hang out tomorrow. I am scheduled to work every single day of the week. And that's an obligation that I cannot say no to. And friendship gets booted. Yeah. I I have to boot it. That's the thing that gets booted. Even though like I care about that more than going to a shift that I know will be repetitive. Mm -hmm. That is less interesting to me, but it is an obligation that I cannot get out of in a way that I can be like, can't hang out, need to go to bed by 11. I can't keep hanging out with you even though I'm having a great fucking time. But in traveling, you can be like, let's stay up all night, man. Like, I have nowhere to be. I already took off work. In some ways, I think friendship is actually a privilege. I mean, I think the working poor don't have the chance to make friends and build sustained relationships because of the same thing that you're talking about is that they're crushed under, you know, financial and social obligations. And the other part is, is that I think that because friendships are voluntary, they get deprioritized for more institutionalized relationships like 
partners and parents and children. And so you see this thing, I think, especially among middle class people, and I'm using that very loosely, where they become super alienated and lonely very young and don't know how to make friends or sustain friends. And that's especially the case among men, I think, after their 20s for the rest of their lives. And for women who are divorced or widowed or who live by themselves um, after their 40s. And I think those are two populations where the ability and maybe even the desire to make friends and do intimacy work are disproportional and there's a huge like gap there and and that seems really problematic to me because the things that friends do are that they provide social identity support so they support who you are and the choices that you're making and the values that you have if you do not have friends that are willing to support you with empathy or caring or emotional labor or love you know or just talking then it's very difficult to find a sense of self and meaning in the world because then you have no place to ground your identity. And then it becomes difficult to trust. Right. So the longer you go without making friends, the harder it is to build trust, the more uncertainty you feel. Friendship becomes so much more fraught with danger and risk because there is so much freedom to come or go, to build or walk away. And people, I think, you know, a lot of people then are are racked with intense anxiety about their ability to connect with others, which creates conflict inside themselves and around others. So, you know, I think you're totally right that there that something has to give, and and one of the things that always gives is friends, and it's it's to our detriment that that's the case. I think that poor people are actually better at friendship, but it is sort of out of necessity. Mm -hmm. Community building is a very important strategy Mm -hmm. for people who don't have economic resources at their disposal. Totally. So, I mean, you've got to make friends because sometimes you need someone who can watch your kids in a blink. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need a ride to work. And sometimes you need a meal. Like, if you cannot, on one particular day, feed your kids, you've got to have a network of people who, like... And, you know, being poor is a very tenuous position where sometimes you have resources and sometimes you don't. So you've got to have a network of people who can help you with that. And that can be problematic, too, because sometimes you choose people who otherwise you wouldn't. Sometimes people who are abusive and Mm -hmm. don't fit in your life framework necessarily, but have resources that you can utilize when you need it. I think, though, that once you are able to materially provide for yourself then your priorities are like spouse Mm -hmm. children offspring i want to be very clinical about this because you know like the relationships are very prescribed Mm -hmm, they're prescribed to you so (laughs) it's spouse offspring career (laughs) financial stability um, beyond financial stability, like even the point of financial stability is not enough. Even then you prioritize further financial gains and monetary That's enrichment right. over friendship. Like That's right. even though study after study after study after study has shown that friends are one of the most important factors in your personal happiness, in how you perceive yourself, in your personal confidence, even then 
they fall so low on your priority list. It's so strange to me that once you attain a certain kind of comfort, you know, there's like a hierarchy of needs. That friendship doesn't come right after that. Yeah. It's an it it's a necessity when you don't have those material needs, but then it becomes, you know, low on the priority list. Part <laughs> of it can... though is like the cult of individuality, you know, is especially as the further people fall down that rabbit hole of material achievement, um, the more they puff up into this cult of the individual, and then they find themselves alienated. They're alienated in the suburbs. They're alienated by aging. They're alienated by their families as their values shift. They're alienated by the fact that their time does not feel like it's theirs. They're certainly alienated by leaning into a culture where the people who are not re- reciprocating the kinds of intimacy and connection that you want, you know, they're alienated by those things. The prescription is that the thing to overcome that is one partner who you're going to be with until death. And um, the, that cult of the individual doesn't bear out. Those are the people who die the youngest, who have, you know, they have the most heart disease. They have, you know, they report less mm-hmm. satisfaction about their lives overall. And so it, it's amazing to me that people continue to buy in to the idea that a spouse will complete you to, and to the exclusion of all other kinds of friendship or love relationships and they can't see how that is actually killing them. I mean, it's an ironic sort of predisposition towards the individual mm-hmm. that actually is destroying the individual. Right. Well, well, let's talk about that more then. Because I think I think there is a difference between love and friendship. And I, I mean, they go together. I mean, they overlap. They overlap. Uh, but I think there's a conflation with the social expectations of a one partner. And you might love them. And a lo- in a lot of cases, you do. But the amount of resources that you spend on that because of your cultural expectations, I don't know. It inflates the feelings that you have about a particular person because you're like, I should be spending all this time with them. I think a lot about the scene in Broad City. There's a scene and it's, I think, maybe even the first or second episode where one of the main characters is having sex with her boyfriend. And at the same time, she's Skyping her best friend. So it's... She is doing intimacy in that moment, but it's not with the person that she's sleeping with. Yeah, totally. It's with her friend. And to me, that is just like a very clear statement. You can be having sex with someone and not have intimacy with them. And you can be over the internet with someone and have intimacy with them. And they like make a joke of it because it's all squashed together in that one scene. But it is a very clear statement that the person you're dating may not be the person that you're most intimate with. And there's like... Well, it's interesting because the data shows that when you ask women who's their best friend, they say their best girlfriend. And if you ask men who's their best friend, they say their wife or their girlfriend. And women, for the same reason we were talking about poor folks, women are forced to have larger networks of friendships to survive. Friendship is a survival mechanism. And men, because the cult of the individual is so much stronger among men and that sort of cult of achievement and the financial stability and sort of the pressures on men to be some sort of special financial providers is so strong, they get alienated from friendships much earlier and then they never come back to them. They never relearn how to build adult male friendships, which alienates them and contributes to general depression and problems in their families and spousal abuse and substance abuse 
because they are cut out from communities of practice where they're building solidarity, and then they can't love. They can't love themselves, and they can't love another person. And so for me, I feel like French doing friendship well is a good indicator of whether or not you're a good lover, not necessarily even as like a sexual partner, but as somebody who can both give and receive love as a verb, you know, like we are doing loving together, you know, not as an action verb, not as just a noun, like that's transactional, like I gave you some love and you gave me some love. No, it's a thing that we are collaborating on to produce a range of feelings that are positive and supportive and that create a sense of pleasure and play. I mean, some of the feedback we've gotten from season one is that so many people liked the play episode because it pointed to something that was missing in both their friendships and their intimate relationships with sexual partners. And that tells me that they're not doing good friendship work if they don't, if play is not an automatic part of the way that they relate to others, you know, as a skill set that builds intimacy. The other thing is, is that I think that the people who are most successful at friendship also choose friends as lovers that they know how to build strong close intimate relationships with people and those are the people that they choose to explore other parts of their life with and that seems very smart to me right (laughs) but that takes a lot of work you know you cannot do that with all of your acquaintances we're talking about types of friendships and like there are friendships where you should tag in every once in a while there are even friendships where i mean this is like baseline keep the friendship barely alive, you know, uh-huh. Yeah. where you write happy birthday on their Facebook page every year <laughs> and maybe like, like a few of their statuses. And that actually does keep a relationship from just like flatlining. Yes. It does. Although that doesn't mean <laughs> that it's a real life friendship. But then if you're talking about doing that kind of emotional work where you're being very intimate and like including play. I think play is very high level and it has to yes. be, it has to include a lot of spontaneity and it has to include frequent interaction. And that is something that few people can sustain. I know like with my good friends, people who I consider very close friends will try and schedule a time to hang out. And I mean, I'm partially at fault for having accepted a schedule where I'm, I work every single day of the week unless I plan Time off, yeah. Time off. They'll be like, when is the next time you can hang out? And sometimes it'll be three weeks from now. And that is not conducive to the type of intimacy building that you're talking about. And I think that's true for a lot of people. It's a goal for me. Friendship is a goal for me. And that is still quite difficult. I feel like as someone who prioritizes friendship even, and I say I prioritize it, but I don't know if it bears (laughs) out in my... Day-to-day life, yeah. Day-to-day life. To me, it feels like, you know, where is the potential for other people, too, who, like, feel even more constricted by the weight of their responsibilities? I know there's a lot of public work, not in the United States specifically, but there's public work to help communities engage more. A lot of times, isolating yourselves from other people is inertia. It's just, like, automatic to move to a suburb. <laughs> and, like, when you, right. when you go home, you just, like, go to your living room and watch TV. But that doesn't have to be the case. What if social spaces were set up in a different way and then you would, you would maybe act differently? There's a new German style of architecture that's an affordable housing project that it's, like, a condo-style project, but 
half of the space is shared space. You have a small living space that is private to you. But, like, if you have kids, there's, like, shared space for your children to interact. There's shared space for cooking. I mean, they do, like, private kitchens, but they're very small. So, like, a lot of the space that you live in is shared space. That whole project includes walkable spaces mm-hmm. for, like, grocery. So there's a lot of opportunity there for chance encounters and for you to be in public rather than private. Like, a lot of things that you would do that you wouldn't mind doing in public. Cooking, perhaps. Or that would even benefit from multiple contributors. Mm-hmm. And it's very new. And, I mean, I've talked to my friends who have lived in Germany and who live in Germany now. And they're still, like, unaware of it. So it's just, like, a budding idea that you create social spaces for people to interact (laughs) and meet friends but it is very difficult in the current landscape I get in my car to go places you know I also sort of wonder about the difference between people who do community building as part of their job or part of their social identity because they overwhelmingly have larger networks and people more people that they count as close friends And so I think that community building and community engagement is a really good predictor of how healthy and happy not just the community is, but the individuals are who are working to sustain it and build it. But I think that because a lot of people are not engaged in their community for a whole host of reasons, including labor and leaning in and work schedules and time and family and things like that, because they are not doing community building, then they become, they actually are on the outside of the community, no matter where they live inside of it, you know? I think that you're absolutely right that there are ways that we can think about space and place and architecture and, you know, actual land Mm -hmm. as variables in the puzzle. But if we move from that, you know, larger lens back down to the individual, who do you think are the best kinds of people that are the best friends? Like, what do good friends look like? How do you know one when you see <laughs> The theoretical stuff is really interesting to me, but I think it's the practical nuts and bolts. Like, how do you know that somebody has the potential to be a great friend? Well, I mean, listening is a huge key. A good friend will talk something into the ground with you. They will fucking yes, ring they will. <laughs> every... They will ring every conversational possibility out with you if that's what you want to talk about. And you know, that that's why close friendships are so prevalent in high school and your young adult years early college like there's a lot of time that people can devote to just like analysis circling around Mm -hmm. circle 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 (laughs) around any topic whether it's like leo i mean i talked about like the dumbest dumbest things but we would talk about it for hours on the phone i mean i talked for hours and hours on the phone with my best friends in junior high and high school about stuff that I could not be bothered to spend time on now. That's why I'm a worse friend now, you know? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I don't think that that's true. You do that for me all the time. Right. I do that for you all the time. I mean, I don't think that that's true. I don't, I don't think you're being fair. <laughs> right. Well, I'm saying, I'm saying though, like, but part of that is, I mean, it goes deeper than just the fact that they will deconstruct a topic until it's dust basically (laughs) yeah that they'll deconstruct a topic as much as possible with you it's that they are giving that time to you yeah and they're giving that energy to you and they're giving that emotion to you and that they also care about the things that you care about because by listening you're saying you're important to me this is important to me and that's why i'm here with you right now and we're doing this 
Yeah, I mean, I have a really hard time building friendships with people who can't say that I'm invested in the other person. Like, mm-hmm. if, you, if you want to be friends with me and you can't tell me that you're invested in me as a person or my life or my ideas or if you can't talk about your relationship to me, mm-hmm. this is it's going to be a non-starter because I'm like, that's where all the interesting stuff is, is in the how we are relating ourselves to one another you know, and this is often the case with academics because a lot of them are so introverted and a lot of them are unable to connect that way. I don't have a ton of close friendships that are academics. My friends are not academics because they cannot reside in the intimate space that we share about the self. They can only work in the abstract ideas of stuff we've read or conferences we're going to or what we're publishing, which I mean, that's like the stuff I swim in. That is not the making of a strong friendship to me. So I agree with you. I think listening is important. I think um, revealing your needs and wants of the friendship and what what you would like out of the other person is important. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can be negotiated and reassessed constantly for me. It can be. But I just feel like a lot of people don't have the communication skills to be able to assess those. So one of the tools that I use when I start friendships is I give books. Right, because there's a ton. People have downtime all the time, whether they're in the doctor's office or <laughs> they're on an airplane or right before bed, where most of the people that I'm interested in talking to are reading. So I'm like, do you want to get to know me? Here are the texts that are like the the decoder key <laughs> to understanding my values and the things that I'm interested in talking about. And let's see if we can read these together and get on the same page. And I'm willing to do that for other people too. I find that my friend, my best friendships are textual in a way that I don't ex- just expect their words or our interactions to serve as the only mediation of who we are as people. You know, I think for me, books play a huge, huge, huge role in bridging the gulf between myself and the other self. I do that too, but I do it like much further into the relationship. Once I'm already good friends with someone, I feel comfortable being like oh well we're both mutually interested in this subject and like maybe we could read this together as like you know as a mm-hmm. conversation topic that we can then Play you know in. do that <laughs> thing where we just like talk and talk and talk I think for me like the first thing I do with people who I like sense closeness with and potential with is divulge or like be very weird I will reveal like yes you will <laughs> uh, yeah I'll reveal something like I mean, not like a particular fact, but I will start behaving in kind of an aberrant way or a way that like feels very comfortable and natural for me and like friends who have played with me in that way. And I did it a lot in high school because it was such like a compulsory, like public education, pretty sterile environment. And I played basketball and even in like basketball, we weren't allowed to like have that much fun outside of the drills that we were doing. And I would, like, make up these little games and I could just, like, connect with certain people who would also indulge that interest in being different. Like I said, a lot of my friendships have been, like, very intense, short, and volatile. (laughs) So I think, like, also you should, but they're still important. I cannot tell you how much I owe to my friends, how much they've taught me and how much they've informed who I am as a person. Uh And I can like name individual people who have given me a certain outlook on the world or who have taught me a certain way of being in the world. Even like 
in the way that they act around other people and the way that they treat other people, their conversational style and their temperament. I am a much better person because, because of my friends and because they spent time with me and we had fun together. You know, I feel for like for me, we were talking about kinds of friendships. The friends that I am the closest to, I expect the space to to be able to be really raw and to receive really raw responses in return and process that in a safe space. But I am have tons of friends that I would say that I'm close to that I do not do rawness with at all. Mm-hmm because of power differences or my position or age differences or, you know, some of these social barriers that we talked about early on in the episode, I feel like my very closest friends, I want to have the ability to be raw and honest with. And that is a, an expectation that I very clearly have of the relationships that seem to have the potential to be extremely intimate and interesting. The other thing I was thinking about is doing feminist friendship because I was at a conference on reproductive justice this weekend and I was sort of riffing on this in the car with some of my pals and I was talking about the difference between being an academic and being in the academic space and performing and then being in feminist spaces that are intersectional, inclusionary and are extremely diverse in the way that the academy is not. And in the academy, it's so hierarchical and it's so masculine and it's so white that the dominant mode of interacting that people have is extremely hostile and defensive. And so domination is the, you know, mode of engagement in the academy, which I just find brutal and exhausting. And then I oddly also excel at, I'm sure, because I was a debater. But in the feminist spaces, I have to really be extremely cognizant of not performing the same sort of thing. So I find myself as a feminist friend, especially in feminist, explicitly feminist spaces, or intersectional spaces or diverse spaces, being extremely clear about how much I like somebody or like the conversation. I'm doing a ton of emotional work to be explicit about praise and support and care and emotional labor in a way that I will never do in the hostile space of the academy outside of the people who are under my charge that I'm working with and cultivating you know, as a mentor-mentee mm-hmm. relationship or the colleagues that I'm mentoring. And that was very revelatory to me this weekend that I was making, you know, significant style choices in the way that I was um, performing friendship with a bunch of people who are doing cutting edge, really risky, socially, politically risky work to build community. Yeah, I've kind of noticed that academic praise is like they'll say good job in kind of like a backhanded way, like they don't see you as a threat But if you really present something interesting to them, it's like questions and not praise. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, like that's a totally different arena. That's totally right. Praise is not a thing. Academics, their entire lives are are set around rejection. It's so So competitive too. Like you, how does friendship, friendship is about cooperation Mm -hmm. and not competition And that's why friendships are hard to cultivate in workplaces, too. You know, like, we're talking about how it's harder to make friends. When you're leaning in. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and countless, countless, countless articles come out all the time about, like, how do you make friends after you're 30? How do you make friends in your career? 
it's very difficult when you're in a competitive field and when any kind of divulging yourself could be like used against you. Yes. Any kind of weakness can be used against you and that is not okay. Listen, but that's that's how I feel doing this podcast though. Like my mom was like, I don't know, I just thought you would be more revealing about your inner stuff. And I'm like, really? On the internet, on the podcast? You know, when my entire career is spent around people who are looking for the opportunity to destroy me, I'm like, or not, maybe not, mom. (laughs) But I mean, I'm thinking about that constantly in this space about the the degree to which I want to reveal things here. I do not have that kind of freedom because it's so cutthroat and it's so destructive. Lean back is so attractive to us, I yes. think, because competition and capitalism, which is something that we've already like railed against. And I mean, we can continue to tenderize it. <laughs> like, I mean, we're, as we're we're, we will, we will. <laughs> And, and we've been talking about how it creates so much anxiety and how it, like, is destructive to you as a person. It directly interferes with your ability to make friendships because yes. it prioritizes your personal needs and your competitive needs. And you, as an individual in a very competitive environment, over your potential to make friends. Like, people, like, your academic colleagues could easily be friends that would ride or die for you. They could easily be people who have very intimate connections with, but you don't because you're in this competitive environment. I think that's why leaning back appeals to us because it allows you to like reject that competitive aspect to interpersonal relationships. And it rejects that mindset where you see a person as a potential obstacle rather than a friend or even like someone who can like raise you up. Yeah. Well, I just feel like the institution gets in the way of friendships. So I have a new friend that I've been doing a ton of intimacy work and um, she lives in Boston and we were talking, Skyping a couple of weeks ago and she was like, well, tell me like, who are you closest to in the field? And I just started laughing. I'm like, what are you talking about? I am like, it took me a decade to finally convince myself to bother to try and think of colleagues in the field as potential friends, like it does, it would have never occurred to me to ask a similar question to you. Never. And, you know, I talk about this with a lot of young academics too. Like these, this is not the, if this is the only place where you have, you know, social sustenance, you are going to be extremely lonely in the academy. And so they ask those sorts of things. And I'm like, my actual friends, the people that I'm closest to, are not at work. And that's not to say that I'm not close with some people at work, but if you look at the proportion from colleagues who I do intimacy work with compared to those off campus and around the country that I do, it's like not even close. I completely prefer the company of non-academics. I completely do. And, you know, I also feel like, I was talking about this in season one a little bit, that I'm good at code switching because I seek out people who are different from me. And I think that there are a lot of people who are not comfortable seeking outside of their workplace or outside of their very narrow comfort zone to find new people and exist in a much riskier space that has a a potential for higher yield. So I love doing friendship with you. I love doing it privately. I I love doing it publicly because there is such a high degree of spontaneity and risk-taking and play and an openness and I, you can't do that at work when mm-hmm. everybody's expecting you to lean in you certainly can't do it as a woman and so I find that really really 
stifling. Well, we're not competitors. We're collaborators. Uh-huh, yes. And that is building communities, especially mm-hmm. around an idea. And we've, we've both centered in on this construct that we want to deconstruct and like reinterpret. And we've been doing it as friends. And then now we're talking about it and trying to share it with other people. I mean, it doesn't just apply to us. No. Feminism has advanced by people being collaborators. Women in particular being collaborators through consciousness circles. But the thing that I hate about modern feminism is the tendency of younger feminists to become misandrists. And to do the man-hating. And it's not that I don't understand why they're so frustrated And it's not that I don't understand why the sexual violence is so tremendously devastating or campus rape or the wage gap or any of the other persistent inequalities that detrimentally affect women. But I cannot participate in that because I'm like, if you cut off the possibility to love and show empathy to men, we're hoes. Like the project is dead. There is not a situation where consciousness raising among women themselves as an interior audience is going to be the thing that saves the day. It's not a thing. It doesn't work that way in any kind of social movement. It doesn't work that way as a vector of social transformation. And so for me, when I think about friendship, I also think about, you know, friendships that do not stay within one gender identity or sex. And I think that compulsory heterosexuality in particular is devastating in as people age because women feel like they can only spend time with women and men feel like they can only spend time with men. And there's so much to be learned from people of all different kinds of sex identification or gender identity that um, people cut themselves off, I think, from the potential to revel in difference. And they do it because they're afraid They do it because they're fundamentally afraid that there will be something more interesting or something that speaks to a different part of them or something that reveals part of themselves to themselves, that they will grow and change in a way that will fundamentally undermine, you know, what other long-term expectations that they've created with themselves and with other people. And that seems to be such a total shame to me that they have cut themselves out from the quote-unquote opposite sex or from queer or trans people or whatever, that they are artificially limiting the kinds of people that they can interact with. That is a fail. I think leaning back would be like falling out of their chair. Yeah. (laughs) And never getting back up in the chair. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's sad funny. It's funny because we're playing in the space, but it's really very sad to me that people willfully cage themselves into expectations that I mean I hate to use the ableist metaphor but that literally emotionally cripple them from being able to connect with other people that might have things in common with them that seems to me to be an egregious public tragedy so I think as a communication person somebody who thinks really critically about communication styles and strategies I am really open (laughs) to sharing time and building friendships with folks who have experienced tons of trauma and loneliness in a culture that thrives on both of those things. You know, and I think it's actually a feminist praxis to be open to building friendship with people who are damaged by the expectations of the culture that also alienates them, not just from themselves and their labor, but from other people as well. And I think that if we all saw that as part of the common goal of the human family as sort of humanists, 
we would be much richer socially, emotionally, sexually than we are right now. I say this all the time, you know, to the chagrin of some of my colleagues, but I'm like, I'm surrounded. I feel like often I'm in public places where I'm surrounded by zombies, by people who are emotionally dead inside, who are just going through routines, who haven't given any thought to their desires or their needs or their wants in so long and couldn't even find the language to express it if they tried. And those people die younger and, and, and they report less satisfaction and they can't connect with their kids. And I mean, they have all of these social problems, but they continue these unhealthy attachments to notions of sentimentality or romance or heterosexuality or the quote unquote family or normative assumptions of identity that undermine the potential for them to connect with other people that would really sustain them in much healthier, loving ways. And it's, it's a travesty. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.